there are things that students can do, you know, if we can really focus on tangible, concrete things and steps in a short amount of time, you can really change an ecosystem in a positive way. Not to say you can address everything, not to say that it's enough, but there are ways to make a meaningful impact in people's lives if you start with listening and do things that are concrete that can change a system. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Rural Matters. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman, and if this is the first time you're joining us, thank you and we hope you'll hear some things today that compel you to subscribe to the podcast And of course, to our return listeners, I want you to know how truly grateful I am. Uh, I was informed this morning that we have reached 24,230 downloads. So thank you again for your continued interest in what we're doing here. So what are we doing here? Our, Our mission here on Rural Matters is to increase awareness, inform discussion, and promote intelligent dialogue on the most important issues facing rural stakeholders today. Of course, you can listen to Rural Matters on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, anywhere you'd like to get your podcast. And as I said, we really just encourage you to subscribe so that you'll receive episodes automatically. And as always, we appreciate it if you'll tell your colleagues and friends about what we're doing. Uh, If you've got ideas, questions, comments, or if you'd like to suggest a guest, you can email us at podcasttoday at gmail. And that's two, the number two day at gmail.com. Today, I am elated. I think that's an understatement to announce that we're kicking off a very special four-part series focused on poverty and policies in rural America. Uh, The first two episodes, our focus will be on poverty, followed by two episodes discussing the key issues in rural America likely to impact the 2020 elections. All of this, of course, as everyone, including rural America, continued to battle the coronavirus These are difficult times, and I firmly believe we need to have these critical and, as I call them, courageous conversations. So let's get ready for an incredibly insightful and busy month of June here on Rural Matters. Uh, Let me just say that our two guests today, both from the University of Michigan's Poverty Solutions, are clearly the right people we need to be talking to to kick off this conversation. Um, In case you're not familiar, Poverty Solutions is a University of Michigan initiative that aims to prevent and alleviate poverty through action-based research that informs policymakers, community organizations, government entities, and practitioners about what works in confronting poverty. So first, I just want to say I'm thrilled to have Catherine Eden join us this morning. Catherine is one of the nation's leading poverty researchers, a qualitative and mixed-method researcher. She has taken on key mysteries about the urban poor that have been fully answered, uh, not been fully answered, I should say, by quantitative work. So these are the questions. How do single mothers possibly survive on welfare? Why don't more go to work? Why do they end up as single mothers in the first place? Where are the fathers and why do they disengage from their children's lives? How have the lives of single mothers changed as a result of welfare reform? The hallmark of her research is her direct, in-depth observations of the lives of how low-income women, of lives of low-income women, men, and children. I've had an opportunity to um, read parts of the book, and I cannot wait to get through it. She has authored, along with Luke Schaefer, our other guest, $2 a Day, The Art of Living on Virtually Nothing in America. And uh, I really encourage you to read it. Uh, The New York Times does, too. It was one of the 100 notable books of 2015. Also joining us is Luke Schaefer, who you may recall was on the, uh, with us last October for our series on Conquering Rural Challenges. Luke is the Herman and Amali Cohn Professor of Social Justice and Social Policy at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy and a Professor of Social Work 
at the University of Michigan. He serves as the inaugural director of Poverty Solutions. So good morning, Catherine and Luke. Thank you so much for joining us for this really important conversation. Thanks, Michelle, for having us. So, Catherine, I do want to start with you because your your research, and I, we just learned it chatting a little bit this morning that you are, we are both from rural Minnesota, but your research has taken you to do a lot of re- uh, work um, in, with respect to urban poverty. But when you take your research and turn it in the research lens from an individual to a community, uh, I'd like to just hear more about that the projects that you are working on and uh, just give us a lay of the land of what your focus is. So uh, Luke and I, in collaboration with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, were challenged a couple of years ago to move beyond conventional measures of disadvantage, which generally involve uh, income-based measures of poverty, and to try to construct a new metric that really captured disadvantage in uh, its various aspects. So we did that. We put together what we called an index of deep disadvantage using administrative data and combining measures of poverty, health, and uh, intergenerational mobility. And uh, we used fancy techniques to weight this index. And then we threw it up on a map. Hmm. And what was absolutely stunning about this experience is uh, that deep disadvantage uh, was tightly clustered into six regions. Um, the uh, the Delta, the Cotton Belt, Appalachia, a few cities in uh, in um, the Upper Midwest, the Rio Grande Valley, and Native Nations. So most of these places, the vast majority of these places, uh, were rural. And you know, I grew up in rural Minnesota, but, but I hadn't been studying rural America in all of this time. And uh, so what we did is we began to um, send teams uh, to these clusters who were committed in each of these clusters to understand what that place looked like. Uh, And not just to interview poor people, people below the poverty line, which is what I usually do, but to um, but to but to interview and observe a broad range of folk within the community. So the mayor, the sheriff, um, the shopkeeper. Uh, the pharmacist, um, the uh, frontline, you know, the frontline uh, worker uh, of the kind that's now um, uh, incurring so much risk in the in the course of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, the so SSI recipient, um, the stay-at-home mom, the soup kitchen volunteer, mm-hmm. and uh, it was stunning how. And I don't want to give away all the goods before Luke jumps in here, but it was stunning how different, um, differently that lens made us think about what was going on in these places and and what policies might be most appropriate. So uh, I can tantalize you with with that. Yeah, absolutely. But looking at the whole community rather than just a subgroup really helped us to understand the dynamics of what was producing and reproducing poverty in many places, uh, many cases, these these places have been poor for generations. Mm-hmm. The term we, you know, that most people are familiar with um, in listening to this podcast, we've talked about persistent poverty before. Luke, I'm curious, um, since we just got teased here about that, what about what in the, those results surprised you the most? Well, the first thing that really surprised us was this urban-rural divide. So when we use this data from 
poverty rates and health. We use life expectancy and low infant birth weight as health outcomes. And these data from administrative records on social mobility, we put it into this index. We looked at the 100 most disadvantaged places according to this index. These are all the counties in America and all cities, all 500 of the largest cities. And we find of the 100 most disadvantaged, only nine of them were large cities. Hmm. And when we say large cities, that's going down to populations of about 40,000. We compare that to 19 of that 100 most disadvantaged places are rural counties in the state of Mississippi. So over twice as many rural counties in the state of Mississippi as cities. And 22 include tribal lands. So that just suggested to us that poverty research with a focus on urban poverty, which is incredibly important, may be missing a big part of the picture when we think about the places that face some of the greatest challenges. Mm -hmm. When we start to look at the outcomes of those folks, we see, let's look at life expectancy for the 100 most disadvantaged places. Uh, life expectancy in the United States is about 78, 79 years. It's 72 years in the 100 most disadvantaged places and 82 years in the 100 most advantaged places. So there's a 10-year gap in life expectancy between the top and the bottom. And that 100 most disadvantaged places, that life expectancy is comparable to what we'd see in Bangladesh, North Korea, or Mongolia. And then low infant birth weight outcomes are similar to what we'd see in Congo, Uganda, and Botswana. Another deeply, thing, deeply mm -hmm. disturbing. I just want to say, so I'm my jaw just dropped when you hear those figures. I hope that our listeners understand how obviously we'll talk about the complexities, but just how shocking it is because we are talking about America. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you took uh, the 100 most disadvantaged places and and, uh, and considered them a country, they would rank well down on the spectrum. But these are places in America. And the most important thing to me is what Kathy started to talk about, this community level approach. So she and I have done much of our research focused on families, following families with very, very low cash income and thinking about large scale policy. but and a lot of the work, we've missed those community level factors that drive so much of what we're seeing, things that we never would have thought about, right? If we weren't thinking about what happens, what happens in a, in a small town, who has control and who doesn't, and, and what's going on with people, issues like heirs property, that um, issues like local government issues, like racial hierarchy that we've just haven't been as prominent a part of our research agenda as as they should be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Catherine, you've been researching this subject for a very long time. Um, and I read in the book, you know, when you go back and visit um, after, you know, a couple of years of uh, and see how communities that you've worked with in the past. But I'm curious about the role that history plays in the patterns that you have uncovered. Okay, so that is a great question. Uh, there's a map, you can Google it. Uh, it's an 1860 census map showing uh, where the largest slave holdings are. And there's a crescent running uh, from the Carolinas through uh, kind of the middle of Georgia 
down through uh, Alabama and into Mississippi, and then hitting the Delta and, and sort of going down. So it's kind of like a big swoosh across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, and uh, these places are very distinctive because these are the places where slaveholders practiced plantation style uh, farming. So these were not small farms. Uh, these were far, these were um, plantations uh, that were cotton specific. They were organized around growing cotton. And in order to grow, grow cotton, you needed to have um, masses of, um, of laborers. And so uh, people who first came into Alabama and Mississippi, they often brought with them, you know, 80 slaves, 100 slaves. Um, from the get-go, even before the Civil War, these areas tended to be uh, Black majority. Um, even after the Civil War, um, through tenancy, uh, they produced incredible wealth. These were some of the wealthiest areas in the United States. And, and then, of course, um, after you know, the bull weevil in the early 20th century, uh, this all collapsed. Mm. Uh, and, uh, What's amazing is if you plot that map from 1860 onto our map, there is incredible correspondence. Uh, These are the very counties where we see the deepest disadvantage. And uh, it's chilling. (laughs) So uh, we're in two of these counties, um, Marion, South Carolina and LaFleur, Mississippi. Uh, And we're doing very intensive ethnography there, uh, observing, hanging out, talking with people. And what we really see is um, in both cases is a pattern where you have a majority black population uh, with uh, minority white control, not of every institution, uh, but of many institutions and particularly of land. Uh, In addition, there's virtually no institutional sharing. Uh, A lot of these counties have segregationist academies um, that that started up right right after schools were required to integrate. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we saw one community in this region uh, when uh, we did a site visit there. And, and when they were um, ordered to integrate the swimming pool, they simply pulled it up with concrete. <laughs> so we're really exploring what does it mean to, to live and grow up in a place with uh, where the majority of people look like you, but you, but but the power rests elsewhere, or at least much of the power uh, rests elsewhere. Um, this is so relevant now, of course, because a lot of these places have Confederate monuments, mm-hmm. um, so they have symbol of racial oppression. Um, some have the Confederate flag as part of their flag. So uh, one of the things we're investigating is uh, is, is this incredible correspondence, and this in some ways, is one of the two biggest, one of the three biggest stories, really, of our of our findings. And that is uh, fully half of our top 100 counties are majority Black and in this region. And uh, in two-thirds of the cases, um, they're at least 35% Black and in this region. So this is, a, along with the Native nations and uh, the plight of Appalachia, uh, this is really uh, one of the, the dominant stories uh, of our of our research. You know, I think it's interesting because, you know, we, we have to say this out loud. I mean, the times that we are in in your research, I mean, this is an uncomfortable conversation for people to hear. But I think your research uh, uh, helps really shed light on 
this is not a new issue, right? You said the map from eight, from the 1800s. This is something that is just deeply disturbing, and yet it's the long history. And so I want to get into kind of talking about the solutions. And I, I think we can talk about um, you know the statistics are wonderful. We can understand the dynamics and the history behind it all. But I would like for us to begin to talk about some of the solutions. But before we do that, I need to ask each of you um, before we take a break. How concerned are you if you had a crystal ball? How do you think this pandemic is going to make this situation that we're in these the the, the persistent poverty in the South? What do you think the pandemic is going to do um, to make it, I, for lack of a better word, worse than where we are right now? And then we'll talk about some potential solutions to, as you say, alleviate uh, poverty in these areas. Just quickly. Um in one of our counties, LaFleur County, uh, there's a nursing home there that is accounting for uh, one third of the elderly deaths, one third of the nursing home deaths in the entire state of Mississippi. Mm. Uh, the, 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 one of the reasons places end up in our index is because there are health vulnerabilities, right? That's why life expectancy is so much lower. And uh, you cannot find counties with worth, worth, worse health profiles than these. And of course, especially among African-Americans. So uh, heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, you name it. Mm-hmm. It is higher in these places uh, than other places. So if, you know, we, it's hard to predict this virus. We don't know um, how it's changing over time. Uh, but as it begins to move away from cities and down into these vulnerable areas. We're seeing some scary signs in Montgomery, Alabama, which is sort of mm-hmm. in the heart and soul of this historic plantation district. Yes. Uh, the mayor's already saying, hey, we don't have U beds anymore. You need to go to Birmingham. So That's right. Mm-hmm. A lot of, a lot. Of- yeah, we talk a lot of, on this podcast about hospital closures and lack of access to quality health care and in the regions that can least afford it. So I, I personally have deep concern. Luke, I'm, you know, all the all the years that you've been doing your work, your research, um, do you, can you add some insight to to what you think that we need to be kind of bracing ourselves for? Uh, are things going to get a lot worse before we can start to make them better? Yeah, I think um, I have I have stopped making predictions about the future um, just recently since they uh, always seem to uh, just new things happen every day. But I think what Kathy says is right on that if we were to imagine places that would be the most vulnerable to a virus like this, we know that the um, underlying health uh, profiles are a big uh, sort of element of what determines how families are affected by the virus. Mm-hmm. And then the social infrastructure of um, the public infrastructure, I should say. So Kathy and I, in the next section, might talk about social infrastructure, um, the public infrastructure of water, um, social services, healthcare providers, right? Those are the things that can buffer families against that. And I think a lot of these places um, face a perfect storm of uh, being vulnerable. So if I had to guess, I would say, yes, we're going to, it's playing out differently in different places. I know Nicholas Kristoff just had a, a piece about um, the impact of COVID with the Navajo Nation, mm-hmm. um, and some of which would be uh, on our index. 
I, I think we'll see that, but I also say like, I think it's already probably quite a bit worse than, uh, people are aware because we don't have the infrastructure to track uh, as much of how people are being impacted. Absolutely. Yeah, we will get into that. We're going to take a quick break. I want to make sure I acknowledge all of our wonderful, supportive sponsors uh, for this particular episode. So if you'll just hang with us, we'll be right back. This episode of Rural Matters is sponsored by the Community Hospital Corporation, which owns, manages, and consults with hospitals through three distinct organizations, CHC Hospitals, CHC Consulting, and CHC Continue Care, which share a common purpose to guide, support, and enhance the mission of community hospitals and healthcare providers. Based in Plano, Texas, CHC provides the resources and experience community hospitals need to improve quality outcomes, patient satisfaction, and financial performance. For more information, please visit the CHC website, communityhospitalcorp.com. This episode is also sponsored by Rural Medical Education Collaborative. If you are a healthcare professional providing care to patients in rural and underserved communities, visit ruralhealthcme.com to sign up for their monthly newsletter and access their current educational offerings. RME Collaborative develops high-quality complementary continuing education programs that are tailored to your specific needs. If you work in a rural clinic or hospital, you can partner with RME Collaborative on your next quality improvement initiative. Visit RuralHealthCME.com to learn more. Finally, a very special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for sponsoring not only this episode, but all four episodes this month in our four-part series with two episodes on rural poverty and two episodes on rural issues that will impact the 2020 elections. We're proud to have the support of and to collaborate again this year with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the nation's largest philanthropy dedicated solely to health. Since 1972, RWJF has supported research and programs targeting some of America's most pressing health issues, from substance abuse to improving access to quality health care. The foundation is committed to ensuring that everyone in America has a fair and just opportunity to achieve better health wherever they live learn, work, and play. More can be found at rwjf.org. That's rwjf.org. Or follow them on Twitter at rwjf. And now let's get back to our discussion. Okay, we're back and we're going to continue our conversation. Um, really fascinating. There's, a, I think there's just so many aspects of this. I want to make sure that we cover it all. We, we've been talking about poverty and we're joined by Luke Schaefer, um, and he is the um, inaugural director of the Poverty Solutions at University of Michigan. And as I said earlier, we do want to focus on some of the solutions. And obviously, we're in the middle of this pandemic crisis and we're seeing so many things that I don't think any so many crises converge at once that none of us could have ever even imagined. But I know that your research is working on, you know, core research uh, focus areas for you all are, are expanding economic opportunity to reduce poverty, reducing educational disparities to promote social mobility, and addressing the health consequences of poverty. So let's talk about some of the research and how that is fueling the solutions that you all are putting forward. Well, the most important element is this mixed method approach. So I, I came in to the work of being a poverty scholar um, as a as a data nerd, you know, I love spreadsheets. They make me feel warm and cuddly inside. But working with Kathy, who 
um, you know, has been one of the leading scholars on poverty for um, for many years, uh, who has really, I think, shepherded forward this idea of a mixed method approach. And her and I working on that together is just really sort of change the way that I do my work, where often from my positionality, from my sort of uh, life in Ann Arbor, I, uh, I don't even know the right questions to ask. So if I wanted to figure out what in a community would really help with some of the things that we're looking at, um, often I won't even know the right things to focus on unless I go there. And, and so this project has been really just a reiteration of that incredibly important lesson. So when we went to Marion County, Kathy mentioned uh, of all the things that we were expecting to hear about and read about and study and offer solutions, emergency relief after disasters, uh, natural disasters was not one of them. But we found in that community, they were just had been besieged by massive floods related to hurricanes coming up the eastern seaboard. Mm. And that our systems uh, are really inequitable for how aid gets delivered to people who are affected by that. So if you have a home and clear title to it and your home has obvious monetary value, I won't say it's easy, but it's easier to access benefits from the federal government. But we have a lot of evidence that if your home uh, doesn't have a, a clear sort of monetary value, and especially if you don't have clear title to your home, if your home has been passed down from generation to generation, what's called heirs property, mm -hmm. uh, you can you have virtually no chance of getting any help. And so we met families who had been living in homes. You know, the last flood was a number of years ago. They'd been living in homes with mold, like noticeably growing up the walls. And so we've been learning about this thing that I think sounds arcane in its face, heirs property. But um, I've been learning more and more about it and the ways in which not having clear title to a home really leaves you excluded, but that that's not just, it's not just a, you know, everybody faces the same likelihood of being in that spot. It's a clear connection to the historical issues that Kathy started to talk about. Mm -hmm. So how do we change those systems? That's like, you know, the policy question. And it's not something that if you sort of went in thinking about poverty, you would necessarily get to until you went in and really talked to people. Yeah, I, I hear. I agree with you 100 percent. When I start working with any rural hospital, I tell them it's so important for me to come there. I want to understand the community. I want to sit in places where community members are sitting, because if, if we don't hear them, there's no way that we can you know, b begin to think that we have all the answers. So I appreciate that you've done that. Um, Catherine, you mentioned uh, some of the work that you've done in Clay County. You explored a common refrain that you heard among those that you spoke to there, and that was there's nothing to do but drugs. And that's something that we have not talked about yet on, on here, because obviously on top of the piles of things that we're facing with two, we are also talking about, um, you know, opioid epidemic as well. That's still happening. So what did you learn, um, you know, in your work in Clay County? So all of our counties have uh, issues with um, substance abuse. But in no other place did we hear this refrain over and over again by virtually everyone we talked to. Here in Clay County, there's nothing to do but drugs. Hmm. And 
you know, clay is one of the uh, uh, the epicenters of the opioid uh, um, epidemic. It's the poorest majority white county in the country. It's kind of uh, right in right in eastern Kentucky there. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what? <laughs> what does this mean? And as we were talking to people, they say, well, you know, it used to be that young people would gather at the movie theater, but it closed down. And it was bought by a Pentecostal church. Well, it used to be, you know, that young people could go to the rotary, but that's not there. Families used to take their kids to the park, um, but the state just ran a four-lane highway right through the park, and, and there's no there's nowhere to go, to walk, to gather. And uh, we began to hear these stories, uh, you know, the movie, the, the, over and over again, the movie theater, the bowling alley, uh, the swimming pool, the, the common places where people gather, uh, you know, um, feel uh, feel a part of their community, uh, get access to resources. These were just really lacking in clay, and people were attributing this to drug use. So um, there's a really great book that came out a couple of years ago uh, called Palaces for the People by Eric Kleinenberg that introduces this concept of social infrastructure, uh, and that's exactly what our response we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, communities and, and what what he found is that in in uh, in response to Hurricane Sandy, communities that thrived um, had this social more of this social infrastructure than than communities that were not able to to recover so easily from from Hurricane Sandy. So so now, uh, as Luke mentioned, we go back and forth between these these stories and the numbers. Uh, now we're searching for innovative ways of really capturing this. Uh, is there a correlation be- between communities that lose these key pieces of social infrastructure, especially for youth, mm-hmm. community centers, one, uh, roller rinks, um, if anyone goes to those anymore, bowling alleys, uh, movie theaters, uh, even sidewalks, right? And other mm-hmm. public spaces like parks. As these begin atrophying and uh, atrophying in a community, do you see uh, people responding in ways that um, are indications of despair or disconnection or isolation? You know, in each community, we interviewed systematically interviewed 25 poor families along with 25 uh, other community participants, and and the poor families to a person. Uh, though closely connected to family, and most family lived right in the same little holler, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were isolated, deeply isolated from the rest of the community. And uh, you know, one of the ways you manage to connect um, to your community is is these these places. There's this, this community I studied for a while in South Philly. It's a little community called Whitman, very poor. Uh, a poor, sort of a poor white neighborhood in Philadelphia. Uh, yet there's this amazing uh, recreation center there that really sculpts mm-hmm. the lives of families as they participate in in all of the youth leagues and in adult leagues. And and uh, families in that community are really oriented around this this piece of social infrastructure. So that very novel. Uh, there are lots of other things going on in Clare, like Clay County, like unemployment. Uh, there's an, a, another interesting thing we saw was that this uh, the, the county seat of Manchester has a dozen pharmacies, uh, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it only has 2,000 people. 
so lots of interesting things yeah, going on. That's uh, an interesting so one. A, a dozen pharmacies. Yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting. More than a dozen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so you mentioned more, than, earlier, a dozen. more than a dozen. And, and I've experienced that in, in a part of Iowa that I worked in as well. So I'm just sitting here nodding my head because I'm thinking about every rural community that I've ever worked in, in Georgia and Mississippi and in Tennessee and so forth. And, you know, driving through those communities, you know, this is very eye opening for me as well, because I do talk to so many people and I know the hospitals are like the number one or number two employer. But then when we talk about those those facilities closing and those really high paying jobs going elsewhere, I'm just just. It's devastating to think about where we're going to be economically in these communities. So, Catherine, you said something earlier about, you know, just kind of the the, the youth. And, Luke, I'm going to ask you something because I know that, um, you know, us in our age group, and I'm not going to date myself, but we, we can only do so much. We have to teach our young people and we have to get them involved, interested, and to pick up the baton where you guys leave off. And I know that Poverty Solutions does have um, a focus on teaching the next generation about poverty. So what can you tell us about how you're doing this across the university's 19 schools and colleges? Um, and my, you know, my feeling is I have four grandsons. They are my hope for the future. Um, I want them to understand these issues. I don't want them to, you know, not think that it's something that they need to be thinking about. So I, it was really Pleased to see that that's a focus of, of the center. And I, I just would like for you to kind of lay out for us what you're teaching and and the, the response from, from the young people that are engaged with you in this. Yeah, the, the focus for us is um, in bringing students into a, a discussion about these issues, sort of offering them the opportunity to hear from speakers who have a range of sort of perspectives and understanding the issues. And then concrete work that really does the type of um, sort of targets the type of issues that uh, Kathy and I have been talking about with this project in particular. So all of our, our folks who are um, who have worked with us to be embedded in Clay County and Marion and LaFleur are our students. And so they've really helped drive the agenda and understanding those places and working with us as we've come down and visited you know, um, many times. And so uh, we have a a great team member who has become a leading expert, I would say now on Ayers property, another team member who's really learning about um, our disaster relief uh, systems and figuring out what are the ways that they could be changed to work better for families at Poverty Solutions this last year, we had a speaker series uh, that was also uh, a course um, enrollment. And we had uh, just an incredible range of speakers. Um, We had Dorian Warren, who's uh, uh, president of Community Change, uh, uh, one of the oldest groups uh, working on organizing uh, among disadvantaged and vulnerable communities. We had Dean Kamen, who is an internationally known inventor of things like the Segway, uh, but has also done a lot of healthcare innovation um, in ways that has expanded people's um, abilities. And we have lots of uh, projects. Uh, I'll just mention one in particular in the city of Detroit. So Detroit is one of the cities that uh, shows up on our our index of, of deep disadvantage and the on the hundred most disadvantaged places. 
Um, in partnership with the uh, city government, we learned home repair was a big issue. So this is the place that's uh, very poor, but also you have a lot of homeowners. And one of the challenges that families have is, is maintaining their homes over time. Mm-hmm. And so she really took it upon herself to do a, a, a home repair guide, right? So we looked at the policy, figured out how should a city design the programs that they have to help people take care of their homes, the roof, the windows, the furnace. Um, but also uh, just saw a niche of like people not knowing where to go, that there were some resources out there, but they didn't know about it. So she put together a home resource repair guide. And I actually, I'm going to be honest with you, I almost killed the project because I thought, what is that going to do? Like people can really find this stuff. And I will say it's like one of our hottest selling publications. Interesting. We don't don't ask people to pay for it, but we cannot keep copies of this thing. The Detroit land bank, you know, asked us for hundreds of copies, you know, it's being distributed at city hall, community groups are asking for it. You know, it's online, but people also like the, paper copies. And I just can't speak to how much interest and use there has been in this product of like, you know, we have these great analyses of policies and, and the thing that uh, is of most interest is, uh, is a home repair guide. So another great example, uh, we had the economic stimulus payment, right? That was mm-hmm. a part of the CARES Act in response to COVID. And a great thing about that was the Huge, the the fact that it was a pretty broad, people were, there was broad eligibility. So even if you had never earned something, you uh, could receive this. And I think that's a part of the work of a lot of us to say there are a lot of families out here who get left out of some of our policies. And that's work that Kathy and I have contributed to. But uh, you had to do things to get it. So we had a postdoc who, who sort of took the initial lead in setting up a website with information for people to say, if you hadn't filed for taxes, if you've never hadn't had earnings in the last two years, how do you make sure you access this check and don't miss it? We uh, worked with a human designer design firm and uh, just released the website a few weeks ago, and we've had 135,000 people through it. Wow. So there are things that students can do, you know, if, if we can really focus on tangible, concrete things and steps. Um, you, you know, in a short amount of time, you can really change an ecosystem in a positive way. Not to say you can address everything, not to say that it's enough, but, you know, there, there are ways to make a meaningful impact in people's lives. If you start with listening and do things that are concrete, that can change a system. So, so, so incredibly true. You know, boy, I, I wish we had so much more time before we close out um, from, from both of you. Catherine, I, I want to hear from you because, you know, we, we spoke earlier before we uh, recorded about the fact that we, you know, both our families were in rural Minnesota and, and now you are in New Jersey and I'm here in, in Illinois, you know, just about um, 40 miles from, from the city. But if you go eight miles another direction, I, I'm in rural. Rural is a passion of mine for many, many reasons, and uh, I want to hear from you, and, and maybe you can share with our listeners, and I, I routinely ask this question, why should rural poverty matter to those who are not directly impacted by rural poverty? You know, uh, some enormous part of our land mass is actually rural. Uh, it's uh, huge swaths of America. 
uh, are rural. Sometimes people say to me, well, people are moving out of these places anyway. Who cares? You know, <laughs> like 70 percent of American landmass um, can cities or should cities, especially now with with uh, pandemics, uh, be moving to cities. Uh, people have deep affinity to place. Uh, they care about their places. Uh, and in many cases, those of us who are urbanites uh, have a call to home. They have a rural area to which they uh, attach deep meaning and identity. This has really been part of the reason you've seen uh, uh, return migration to the South among African-Americans in recent decades. There's this sense that there's something valuable uh, to these rural places. Mm -hmm. uh, but these rural places also, um, I think, so my rural place of Staples, Minnesota, small town, you know, it doesn't appear anywhere on this index. And in fact, no white county in Minnesota or any white county outside of Appalachia is up in this in this index. This is uh, really a, a black and Latino and Native American rural poverty story. So uh, in some ways, I have to relearn my rural because these places are deeply hierarchical. They've been subject to exploitation for generations. Um, they have very distinctive histories, uh, but they, they really defy our notion of what Americans should be. Mm -hmm. And if we are to, if we are to continue to hold on to the fact that we are a country in which uh, anybody can, this has never been true, but anybody can reach for the stars if they have the ambition and will then uh, we have no choice but to attend places. I appreciate that. So beautifully said. Uh, Luke, what, what what could you add? I'm not sure how to follow her, but what could you add uh, before we close out this particular yeah, episode about think, why this should matter? I think when I reflect on what Cassie just said, it you know, I was just thinking that the central question is, are we really one country? Mm -hmm. Are we, is there one country or are there many different countries, many different places. And if we're one country, we should care about each other. And we should make sure that the values that we hold dear are our values and, and possibilities and opportunities that everyone can attain. And right now, I think there's a tremendous evidence that that's not true. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. You know, we're going to do another episode on this subject, and um, I, I'm going to be asking more about the mindset of poverty and how can we, for those who are not directly affected, what's on their minds and how can we help do a mind shift, if you will, so that we can really help people understand that, number one, you need to understand the challenges, and number two, what will you be willing to do to be a part of the solution? So I really want to thank uh, Catherine Eden and Luke Schaefer for joining us today on this episode of Rural Matters. Very, very insightful. I encourage you, as I said, to uh, even though the book is a couple of years old, it's so relevant. Uh, $2 a day, The Art of Living on Virtually Nothing in America. It's a fascinating read from what I can tell you so far in my uh, dive into that. Um, so at this point, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners. They are so important to bringing you this content. They are the Center for Rural Affairs. Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, 
NTCA, that's the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative. Also AASA, that's the School Superintendents Association, the National Rural Assembly, the National Grange, and NOSOR, that is the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health. Now, again, if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic for future episodes of Rural Matters, please just email us at podcasttoday at gmail.com. Of course, we really appreciate it if you would rate us, give us some good marks, if you will, but we want to hear it all. And uh, I also want to thank my producer, Michael Levin Epstein. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Mm-hmm.